Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Tochi Anye Bucci. He is the author of the young adult novel Beasts Made of Night. He is also the winner of the New England Book Award for Fiction and an Alex Award. His new novel, is Goliath, which is published by our friends at Tor.com. Tochi, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And first, Tochi, I have to ask you about your author bio, uh, because you, <laughs> sir, are a very educated man. Uh, you have a BA and an MFA in creative writing. Uh, but Tochi, you also have a master's degree in economic law and a JD from Columbia Law School. Tell me, Tochi, how does economic law fit into your career and interests as an author? So I, you know, I was a poli-sci major in college and at that time was very much interested in the world around me and particularly outside of the borders of the United States. Um, you know, I was IR, I was international relations and, mm -hmm. um, that stuff always fascinated me. So, and it was interesting too, because in college, I, my writing and writing life and love of writing really exploded. You know, I, I got into writing, you know, when I was a kid, single digits, and then high school, I really, things really sort of blew up. And then by the time I got to college, I was doing, you know, full length novels, just like on my own outside mm. of class. And, um, the fiction, interestingly enough, was a way for me to grapple with concepts that I was studying in the classroom. And so mm -hmm. I, I remember there was one seminar that I took, the, I believe it was the spring of my junior year, um, on international political economy. And so we would study concepts like sovereign debt, international capital mobility, migration flows, and very sort of academic and sanitized fashion. And then after class, I would I would write stories. I would write novels that that engaged in these topics in a way that made them legible to me. Um, so I would write about arms dealers and I would write about drug smugglers and I would write about refugees as a way for me to put these concepts sort of in my in my brain or at least understand them better. And also coming from a Nigerian household, your career prospects are rather limited. It's, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or disgrace to the family. Those are your four <laughs> options. And so uh, I knew very early on based on my skill set and based on the things that I enjoyed that I, that law school was probably in my future. And mm -hmm. those two things basically braided together where it's funny, I got, I did the MFA and went straight from that into law school. And similar with my experience in college, a lot of the stuff that I was studying in law school ended up in my fiction. And a lot of, I learned a ton um, in law school and it was actually a really, a really good experience. And it was also my introduction to issues of social justice, particularly incarceration. And so, you know, particularly a, a, a book like Riot Baby, that could not have been written absent my understanding of incarceration, particularly in the United States, um, you know, in, in, you know, recent and current iterations of it, um, as well as historical iterations of it. 
And so my philosophy with this sort of thing is that nothing's wasted, right? Mm -hmm. That's not like, you know, those years that I spent in law school were lost years or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, they were really, they were, they were pretty enjoyable and pretty fruitful. And the master's in global economic law was actually the result of a dual degree program that I did at mm -hmm. Columbia. Columbia had a partnership with Sciences Po um, in France. And so I did my, I did two years in New York at Columbia, and then I did a year in Paris studying at this bilingual program. Uh, so basically got two degrees for the price of one. So the immigrant in me is really economizing here while also, you know, trying to live up to mom's expectations um, and all of that. But, you know, that's all to say that it all just goes into like my fiction is a way for me to assimilate all of that knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully uh, award-winning author is an acceptable profession for your family. Um, I'm getting there. Was, I'm getting there. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I was curious uh, about your background with economic law because I, um, I've i worked with books my whole life, but I worked at Vanguard for a minute um, doing uh, financial analyst work. So that's a crazy world out there. You just never know what you're going to oh, get yeah. into. Um, my next question for you, Tochi, before we dive into your novel is, can you tell us what is different in your approach to writing a novel for young adults, as opposed to writing a novel for not so young adults? Uh, it's interesting. I, I think the, the biggest learning experience for me writing young adult um, and it's interesting because everything that I'd written before Beast Made of Night was geared towards an adult market, um, mm -hmm. was prioritizing clarity. And mm -hmm. so when I was a, a young warthog, so to speak, <laughs> um, I oftentimes I would write sentences, write beautiful sentences for the sake of writing beautiful sentences, or mm -hmm. I would have unnecessarily complicated plots, or I would have like obtuse character motivations, things of that sort because I thought they were, they were fun and they were things that would pop up in the novels that I was reading, but I didn't quite understand all of the machinery behind how those things worked in the novels that I was reading. They were just like cool things that I liked and would put them in my books. And then writing YA, I learned how important it is, it is that the reader understand what's going on in the book and that the reader be able to follow. Um, mm -hmm. So in many ways, it was a crash course in, in linear narrative, in, in, you know, making character motivations intelligible to the reader in not necessarily making things easy for them because I was writing about very uh, tough subjects um, mm -hmm. and engaging in very mature themes, but I was, hopefully doing so in a way that allowed for maximum reader engagement. And that those lessons went into the adult fiction that I would produce afterwards, because now I had the grounding and I had the foundation on which I could build some of the more complex structures and I could layer in more beautiful sentences. I sort of knew what I was doing now. I knew what was behind the curtain um, that led to the spectacle on stage. And to me, they're almost like two playing two different sports. Uh, mm. YA to me is very much like basketball, where, mm. you know, the goal is to get the ball in the hoop. And there are a number of ways you can do that. You know, you can drive to the, you, you know, you can drive to the rim, 
do a layup, a finger roll. You can dunk it. You can dunk from the free throw line if you're particularly you know, physically gifted. You got the three-point shot. You got the mid-range jumper, all that stuff. But the goal is the same. Mm-hmm. Whereas my adult work feels more like the X Games, where mm-hmm. the goal is often to pull off the most stylishly daring and physically dangerous <laughs> trick possible. Like that's how you get points. That's how you get, you know, your Olympic medals. That's how, you know, that's how you win. And so that's, oh, those, that's often how the, the distinction feels to me. It feels like two different sports, um, which is nice because there are different, there are different goals, different virtues and different sort of vices in, in each yeah, thank you so much. So um, I appreciate that analogy. It's not where I thought it was going because when I think two sports, <laughs> I think Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders and you know baseball and football. Um, but I appreciate it. Uh, I love basketball as we're about to hopefully watch the Charlotte Hornets here um, go mm. beyond the playing tournament in the NBA playoffs. Um, well, let's now dive into your excellent new novel, <laughs> Goliath. Um, Tochi, your book opens with talk about gangs in Connecticut. Are gangs prevalent in Connecticut or is this a problem for these folks in the future? Uh, both, really. I mean, there. I believe it was either last summer, so the summer of 2021 or the summer before, there was a big epidemic of gun violence in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, in ways that we hadn't really seen, you know, for a while now. And some of that was linked to, you know, interpersonal disputes, um, individual incidences, that sort of thing. But some of it also was linked to gang violence. It was a similar thing in New Haven. And, you know, it's very much something that, you know, exists out of the corner of your eye. You know, it's sort of, it occupies this, lacuna as far as news reporting happens mm. um but it is an issue and i i mean i think i think gang violence you know to a lesser or greater extent is an issue in a lot of metropoles throughout the united states and for a number of reasons one of which is relatively easy access to guns like that sort of thing um lack mm. of uh of social services that could otherwise occupy people's energies all of that um And writing Goliath, it was relatively easy for me to extrapolate a lot of current day issues, particularly issues of gangs and gang violence and all the things that entail joining or being in a gang into the future. Because, you know, I don't think gangs are going away or at least that sort of organizational social structure, um, because it does provide, um, whether physically or metaphorically, a home for a lot of people that otherwise don't have one. Um, and that I think is a dynamic that will outlive a lot of things. Yeah, thanks. And I, I'm going to return to gangs in a moment, but first I want to um, ask you about Connecticut because I like to think about novels and stories and where they're set. Are there any other great novels that take place at least partially in Connecticut? I that, it's, it's funny when I was writing Goliath and even before when I was conceptualizing it, I was trying to think of any and I couldn't. Um, mm. is, is, the, is the ice storm set in Connecticut? I don't, I don't know. Um, but usually when Connecticut comes up in fiction and more often in, in television, I think, um, than in books, 
it's often conceived of as this suburb of Manhattan, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So not even a suburb of New York City, but like a suburb of Manhattan specifically. It's, right. you know, it's something featured in like season six of Mad Men, right? Mm -hmm. Where all the rich people, they go to work in, in New York. And then when they get enough money, they go and buy a house in Connecticut. It's like that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, but that that was never my experience of Connecticut growing up. You know, I was born in Massachusetts, but we moved to Connecticut when I was just a little, little, little kid. Um, and my experience of Connecticut was of a much more politically, socially and culturally variegated environment mm -hmm. um, where my where my mom lives. There's a downtown area that really is just like one intersection. But there's there's a, a square with a bunch of stores and, and businesses nearby. And the, on, on a single, you know, in a single like block around the corner, you have a spa where you can go get massages, manicures, what have you. You have a Chinese restaurant and then sandwiched between them, you have like an organic food place and a gun store. And that in many ways encapsulates so much of the, the political and cultural diversity of a place like that city. And I feel like, and not even that city, but that town. And I feel like there's a lot of that throughout Connecticut. Um, oftentimes when I think of Connecticut or when I have thought of Connecticut in recent years, it's almost as though the state appears to me as a microcosm of America. So, so mm -hmm. many of the social dynamics or political narratives that can serve as vectors of explanation for why America is the way that it is, whether it's income inequality, whether it's access to firearms, whether it's, you know, uh, racial segregation, whatever it is, right? All of those things exist in aggravated form in Connecticut. So if you're looking for answers as to the question of, OK, why is America the way that it is right now? Why is the United States the way that it is right now? You need look no further than Connecticut. And that, to me, made what otherwise would be a very sort of characterless state surrounded as it is by Massachusetts and New York mm -hmm. uh, into something very, very, very fascinating and like a place that I, I am proud of to have come from, um, so to speak. Yeah, thanks. And yeah, I was racking my brain for Connecticut novels and I couldn't think of any. The only thing I could um, I could come to was I recently interviewed a gentleman who wrote a book about the Hartford Whalers. Um, <laughs> they, yeah. they turned into our team here, the Carolina Hurricanes. I know, I miss the Whalers so much. I oh, mean, I, ho I, hope you I hope you enjoy them. I hope you enjoy we, them. We do enjoy them and I enjoy them with... Um, the thought in the back of my mind about how terrible it is for people in Connecticut, because as a Charlotte Hornets fan, a lifelong Charlotte Hornets fan, my heart was broken when the team moved to new Orleans mm -hmm. um, and eventually came back, but I can identify with, with that heartache for sure. Um, well, I told you we were going to come back to gangs. Uh, you write Tochi and this is a quote, the invariably white folk who cautioned Jonathan against youthful bravado, against infantile nonchalance, knew that gangs existed, which is to say they knew as much as anybody did about gangs, which is to say they knew nothing, end quote. Can you unpack this statement for us, please? Oh, man. I mean, that's, you know, that's so much of the mind state or 
or rather the the you know what's going on under the mindset of gentrifiers right mm-hmm. it's this absolute lack of knowledge and even lack of the desire to acquire the knowledge of the place that you're going to be moving to or that you intend to move to you don't know and have no interest in knowing about existing communities there, about existing sort of social problems and social dynamics uh, of the, the different communities that exist or can arise in that type of place. You have no interest whatsoever in the lives of the quote unquote natives. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes in place of that, in place of whatever knowledge you might've gained is superstition is stereotype all of that and so you just assume that it's nothing but like wilderness and violence over there you assume that that area is populated if it's populated at all by nothing but savages and all of that is sort of what went into the writing of that line and and Mm -hmm. what's interesting too is that jonathan even though you know, he's playing this role of gentrifier. He's aware of all of that. He's aware of the prejudices of the, of the people whose race he belongs to, you know, he's aware of all of this. But what I also wanted to call attention to is this idea that diagnosis isn't cure. Like you can be aware of systemic oppression while at the same time oppressing people, you know, like you can, and oftentimes you, you may feel better about yourself for this self-awareness to the extent that you don't, you don't really castigate yourself or investigate yourself or think critically about yourself and your actions. You're too busy being in this self-congratulatory pose to really self-examine it all. And so all of that basically is, mm. is what went into uh, the line that you just read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, things get really complicated. Um, thank you so much, Tochi. Uh, mo- much of your novel is centered around space. Uh, there are space colonies. You write that there were no more pioneers in space. Uh, my question is, why not? In the world of your novel, has the whole universe been explored? And for our listeners, could you just take a moment um, by way of answering this question to set up the novel as a whole and tell us what is going on in space? Certainly. So the the book is set in the 2050s. And by this point in the story world, uh, climate change and nuclear disaster have rendered Earth, or at least America, the United States, uh, uninhabitable, almost entirely Mm -hmm. uninhabitable. And preceding that, or as that was happening, uh, a lot of people with resources began to migrate to space and they were they were able to build uh you know these colonies in space these structures in which they could sort of you know recreate habitable environments and that is where the upper class upper middle class again people with resources largely white um live in the wake of of this planetary catastrophe and by the point that the book starts uh you know, there's already been at least one generation of people living in the colonies. And so Jonathan and later his romantic partner, David, um, are part of the second generation. And their bit is that they're bored with space, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. even though 
colonization hasn't really extended too far beyond Earth's atmosphere. They're bored. You know, yeah. this no longer feels like the final frontier. This is no longer an exciting Wild West type of space, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's mm. been suburbanized. And that was that was a conceit that I wanted to play with a little bit, um, which is that, you know, we would think that the impulse would be for further exploration, you know, to to go deeper into the unknown and what have you. But what I wanted to do in this instance is relocate the unknown, you know, the unknown instead of being some faraway galaxy or, you know, another solar system or what have you. The unknown is Earth. The unknown mm -hmm. is the place that your parents and grandparents left. Um, and also given the uninhabitability of it, there is this very exciting or there can be this very exciting, dangerous element to it. It can be mm -hmm. thrilling, the prospect of going there and trying to build a life in the way that, you know, we sometimes used to think of going out west in the in the 1800s um, might have felt for pioneers, for people that, you know, were going to, you know, with the aim, who were going with the aim of, you know, repairing relations with their spouse or, you know, having a family or getting their riches or reinventing themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. That, that sort of enticing danger that can arise from the notion of inhabiting this exoticized landscape that is characterized as unknown. Um, I wanted to have characters that felt that way about earth after having been in space, after having enjoyed the safety and the, and the, the comfort of the environment that they were born into. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tochi. Listeners. We are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Tochi Anyebushi. The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Tochi Anyebuchi, author of Goliath, which is published by our friends at Tor.com. Tochi, what is a brain case? <laughs> so brain case, in my current um, imagining, is basically a, a metal box. Um, mm -hmm. Think about a quarter of the size of an Xbox Series X um, mm -hmm. in which uh, a facsimile of a human brain is placed. And the reason it's a facsimile is because it's largely mechanized um, and in some instances entirely mechanized. Uh, this is part of what can be characterized as the full cyberization process where mm. 
the entirety of like your necessary organs and what have you, even your skin um, is mechanized, uh, is inorganic, so to speak, or at least semi-organic. Um, and so having a brain case, you know, comes with all sorts of uh, cool abilities, <laughs> um, you know, it gives you the, the ability to, you know, partition and organize your memories so that they're mm-hmm. no longer necessarily this almost atavistic, but at the same time connected series of things, these remembrances, but almost like more than remembrances, they can be, they can be filed. They can be pulled up at a moment's notice. They can be used as evidence. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing. It's very much in keeping with, um, that episode of Black Mirror, the entire history of you, where that very conceit is what ends up leading to the dissolution of a marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, the Xbox Series X, what a wonderful machine that is. Um, Oh my goodness, yes, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, Game Pass is dangerous, that's all I'll say. Um, I don't think we have many gamers listening here, but um, maybe their kids know. Um, Well, would you describe this novel as a cyberpunk novel and whether the answer is yes or no, why or why not? It hadn't occurred to me to look at Goliath as a cyberpunk novel. I mm-hmm. think, I think with novels that belong to a genre with mm-hmm. punk as a suffix carry mm-hmm. a sort of innate optimism. Um, mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that even though they're often characterized as person versus the machine, whatever the machine is, whether it's society writ large, whether it's a particularly dystopian place that they live in, whether it's an individual commander or command structure that overrules everything that they're trying to fight against or exist in the midst of, there is this, or at least there can be this sense of you know, there being the potential for success in whatever that battle is, um, even if success is in the form of self-actualization. Um, there's this, you know, it's the sort of optimism of resistance. Mm-hmm. And that element in a lot of ways is absent from Goliath. Goliath, you don't necessarily have people that are fighting against the larger superstructures that have put in play, put them in the circumstances that they're in, You're following the lives of people that are just trying to survive, that are just trying to make it to the next day, and that are just trying to find joy um, or to make their lives worth living. They're not trying to end racism. They're not necessarily in in all instances trying to um, bring large scale resources back to their deprived communities. You know, they're just trying to live lives where they can fall in love, where they can have fun playing spades with their coworkers, where they can... Um, go to church where they can find church amongst their colleagues while in the middle of a, of a work day, you know, stacking bricks. Um, it's that sort of thing. I don't know that I would necessarily categorize Goliath as cyberpunk in that respect. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that answer, uh, Tochi. There is a passage early in the novel where I felt like I was reading Hunter S. Thompson. Um, And this isn't the first time I will compare a passage to another author, but this particular uh, Thompson-esque passage reads, quote, 
a ratty briefcase lay open on the kitchen counter by the sink with pills of different colors and acid tabs and ounces of grass and small Ziploc packages lining the interior, Xanax bars, oxygen, or oxy-30s, leans, actives, loons, shrooms, Adderall, and what looked like meth, end quote. Uh, Tochi, what does this laundry list of drugs tell us about these characters in the world of this novel and also where does this novel lie in the universe of drug-related literature such as fear and loathing in las vegas oh man that party scene was so much mm-hmm. fun to write <laughs> mm-hmm. um i mean what i was aiming at there was a sort of almost boundless hedonism the boundless hedonism that can occur amongst people who have all the resources in the world and the privilege that sort of comes with that. Um, there's one point in that scene where people are spraying air canisters at each other um, mm-hmm. in a way that uh, in combination with the neon lights surrounding them looks like, you know, there's a particular effect attached to it um, that can be aesthetically pleasing. But what they're doing is they're wasting air and they're doing so in a land where radiation particles in the air mean that your cancer rate, your, your rate, your probability rate of catching cancer has skyrocketed by like 75%, the, you know, a place where it's literally unhealthy to breathe air. But because many of the people there are cyberized and have synthetic lungs that can basically cleanse air of poison as it's entering their bodies and being processed by their bodies, they don't have to worry about any of this. So they can just waste air while, you know, the people, the other people who occupy this city who don't have these resources um, are forced to try to figure out their own workarounds. Um, And that like that was something that was a dynamic that lay underneath a lot of that scene. But also, um, I don't know, I wanted to write something that was somewhat atavistic and also that possessed a certain impenetrability uh, for Jonathan, who has recently arrived in New Haven from space. Mm-hmm. And so he's just meeting his, you know, commu- this community of returnees for the first time, you know, other people that are in situations similar to him where they came from the space colonies, they came from worlds of privilege and they've adopted this mindset of settler colonialism. And these people seem very alien to him because, you know, Mm. life on the colonies is very sort of organized. It's very staid. Whereas here it's, 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 he, you know, it, it's hedonistic in a way that he doesn't necessarily immediately understand. It's, it's lustful, it's excess. Like that was, and that was one of the things too that I was going for with the scene was excess. Yeah, well, you succeeded. Thank you so much. Um, why in this novel, Tochi, are people not allowed to live in foreclosed houses on earth? Uh, especially when so many people are fleeing for the colonies in space. A lot of that is just uh, financial oppression, or at least Mm. financial iterations of racial oppression. Uh, The inspiration for a lot of that came from what I read and observed of Detroit in the Mm. 2010s when it was going through bankruptcy. And I would read these stories of people who would have their homes foreclosed on. Mm. 
mm. have to move out immediately without even enough time to pack up their belongings. And then these houses would go on auction. Yeah. And because real estate prices were so low, you would have, you know, basically kids who were coming from overpriced cities like New York um, mm. and buying homes in Detroit for like $350 mm. um, for absurdly cheap. They would buy a home that this this family had just been mandated by law to vacate um, mm. for the type of money that that person could have bought their home back for, but were prohibited from buying their home back for because they were still contracted to pay rent and, and what have you um, or pay, pay the mortgage. Um, and that, that was wild to me. That was mm. such a wild thing that these, you know, this family would be moved out and then just this random dude from Brooklyn could come in and, you know, for half the price of a PS5, like, mm. could buy a home, buy this person's house. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was something that I was trying to get at there, which is that, you know, these things, you know, it almost sounds gratuitous to call them resources, because in many ways, they're more essential than that. A home is more essential than a resource. You know, mm. it's, it's something that has the emotive qualities that, um, you know, other, other things that we might categorize as resources may not have. It's more, it's deeper than that. Um, but some people are prohibited from having them um, by law and by the, the ways in which our laws historically in the United States have been organized. Mm. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that answer, Tochi. Um, I have not read a book that had such effective prose about smoking cigarettes uh, since maybe A Million Little Pieces by James Frey prior to his disaster with Oprah Winfrey. Um, why are these characters, or at least two of them, so focused on cigarettes and the act of smoking? Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's, I'm very attuned when describe, describing characters and coming up with characters to the ways in which they inhabit their bodies. And mm. smoking is an activity, uh, you know, whether it's with e-cigarettes or whether it's um, with regular cigarettes that mm. can implicate the whole body, you know, the gestures with, you know, whether you hold your cigarette between you know, your, the first knuckles between your, your middle and index finger or the second knuckle, how you mm. bring your hand to your face to smoke, um, whether you hold your cigarette between your thumb and index finger, like some people, mm. like how you, when you're not smoking, how you hold your cigarette, like whether you hold it sort of with the, you know, with the burning end facing your palm or whether you hold it with the burning end facing outward, um, whether you are forced to be still when you smoke. So you smoke on like, you know, a work break or what have you, or whether you can smoke on the move. Like so much of that is, you know, it's almost like physical dialogue. It's mm -hmm. a way for people to sort of talk with their bodies. And 
the 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 kinesthetics of that were very interesting to me. I think also too, so much of the novel is caught up with the idea of breathable air and breathable mm-hmm. air, both as a resource, but as something different than a resource, something that people have access to or can have access to or don't have access to. And oftentimes the difference between can and don't is your skin color, um, at least in the book. And the idea of smoking uh, as intersecting with that, but at the same time as providing relief to people Mm -hmm. like it's uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, the vast majority of people who smoke know that it's bad for you or at least bad for your health or it can have deleterious effects on your body and what have you. But I'm pretty sure that countless disastrous fights or workplace incidences have been prevented by the fact that people have been allowed in certain instances to have smoke breaks Mm -hmm. or, you know, to go home at the end of the day, looking forward to that first cigarette after work. Um, It does provide, or it can provide a sense of emotional relief. You know, that first, that first smoke after eight hours of sleep and not smoking, when you get that hit of vertigo, like that can, that can like, get you set for the rest of the day. You know, it's like that sort of thing where you're doing this physically harmful thing that provides an emotional benefit. Um, And all of that is for me bottled up in the act of character smoking. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was a great answer. And finally, Tochi and listeners, there's so much more to talk about here with this wonderful novel, but our time is running short. But finally, Tochi, I want to ask you about one of your stylistic choices. Uh, There are many passages, long passages, of the most beautiful, poetic prose, the likes of which I haven't read much outside of maybe Cormac McCarthy and some of his early works, maybe from the Border Trilogy and before, uh, especially Sutri. But descriptions of nature and the characters' environs, long poetic passage that are immediately followed by dialogue of characters insulting one another, using the N-word, etc. Can you tell us about the stylistic choice of juxtaposing these passages of beautiful description with passages of harsh dialogue and what that accomplishes on the page? That's a very interesting observation. And before I get to the answer, I have to say that Satri is maybe one of my favorite Cormac McCarthy novels. I love that book so much. And it's so underrated. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, what, what's interesting there for me is that it's, you know, I'm very interested in the, the, the ways in which the sacred and the profane both clash, but also cohabit. Mm-hmm. And so this place that I'm describing in this, in this lush prose, you know, that exists in the same place as these characters who oftentimes the only way that they can communicate with each other is is crudely. But at the same time, a lot of what we might on the outside look at as crudeness or even lewdness or vulgarity mm. is expressions of love or affection yeah. between them. There's that closeness, right? It's like, you know, nobody makes fun of my family, but me, you know, it's, it's that sort of energy um, where, you know, if somebody's, if somebody's ribbing you with particular viciousness, you know, it's because they love you (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and nobody else can get away with doing that. Uh, So 
you know, there is a sort of sacredness in the relations between those people that I wanted to, that I wanted to display with their closeness and with the freedom that they have interacting with each other. Um, and also too, you know, as a, as a kid, I had this very, and at the time it was very inarticulable, um, the relationship of wonder with the natural environment. I have this distinct mm-hmm. memory of being a kid and in our backyard, there was this huge tree. I have no idea what kind of tree it was. I want to say an oak tree, but at its base mm-hmm. were all these rocks. And what I used to do as a kid is I would take the rocks and I would slam them down and crack them open. And inside mm-hmm. these dirt rocks, these like dirty brown rocks were these iridescent rings. And that to me was one of the most beautiful things in the world. And that is emblematic to me of a lot of the ways in which, you know, we can sometimes interact with a sense of wonder with the natural environment. And it, it can be even, it can be even more sort of jarring and dynamic and what have you, if the environment that you're having this relationship with is post-apocalyptic, you know, if it's, mm-hmm. if this is the end of the world, how can you still find beauty in a sunset? And it's because the capacity to find beauty in a sunset is quintessentially human. We're never going to lose that. That's not going away, no matter the, the, the color, the tint, the almost the chemical ruin of what we, we would currently think of as a sunset. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tochi. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. Um, I'm in a place right now where I only have time to read the books that I'm featuring on this podcast. And every now and then a book like yours comes along that I know I have to read. So thank you for agreeing to an interview and as such, allowing me the time to read Goliath. Oh, thank you so much for, thank you. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a wonderful uh, and spiritually expansive conversation. And I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to, to hear this reaction from you uh, with regards to this book that I really love and really love having written. Oh man. Well, thank you so much for writing it. Listeners. I have been speaking with Tochi Onyebuchi, author of Goliath, which is published by our friends at Tord.com. Tochi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Tochi Onyebuchi for joining me. Copies of Goliath can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.